Welcome back, Chelsea fans, to the latest episode of the Blues on Parade podcast, where all we do is talk Chelsea and talk shit about everyone else. And today we're going to be talking some shit um, against Crystal Palace and Liverpool as well. And for once, it seems like the first time in a long time, we're not going to be talking shit about Chelsea. Andres, I know you're really happy to hear this. I know you had a really happy weekend as well. I don't think a 1-0 has ever felt like a 3-0 before, but if there ever was a time where it did, it was definitely last weekend, huh? Yeah, man. It uh, feels good to win again, that's for sure. I, uh, I agree. It wasn't pretty, but something about just getting a win going into the battle of the mid-table this weekend against Liverpool. I don't know, man. I'm the ultimate optimist. I don't think... It's going to be smooth sailings, but I hope it's at least, you know, a step in the right direction. You know, something that gets the, the, the gears turning for the better. It's almost like Graham Potter heard our last podcast and uh, skipped over the part where we talked about benching Mountain Havertz. But the rest of the squad was pretty much spot on um, from what we actually wanted to see. So, I mean, let's just kind of get right into it because we do have a lot to cover today between this um, and also the transfer news and all that before the Liverpool preview, of course. So uh, Chelsea did defeat Crystal Palace 1-0. Um, just run through the starting 11 really quick. Uh, Kepa in goal. Lewis Hall started at left back again in a back four uh, with Badia Shiel making his uh, debut. Right next to Thiago Silva, Trevor Chalaba on the right-hand side of the defense playing right back. Midfield three, Jorginho at the base. Uh, flanked by Cal- uh, Gallagher and Chuck Wameka. Um, and then we had a front three of Hakeem Ziyech, Mason Mount, and Kai Havertz. So before I kind of pass this off to you and, and, and get your thoughts on, on the lineup itself, um, something that I noticed was the average age of the squad, which is interesting to me. Um, Crystal Palace's average age was about 27 years old, a little over 27. Ours was 25 and we had 31-year-old Jorginho and 38-year-old Thiago Silva out there on the pitch. Um, so it was a relatively young squad um, with a lot of, uh, you know, some Cobham sprinkled in there. And then obviously some other names that recently joined the squad in Chuck Wameka and Badia Shield. So before we get into them, I mean, is this the kind of lineup you wanted to see going into this game? And how did you feel about it? Yeah, this is exactly what we've been asking for. It's, you know, Jorginho out of necessity probably, but it's slowly moving away from the guys that you don't think will be here next year. It's, you know, we hope that you can bench Mountain Havertz due to form, but you rather at this point probably play them than play someone like Aubameyang, who, if the newspapers are to be believed, is trying to go back to Barcelona. And so... I'm all for this. I rather see the the young guys, you know, go through growing pains a la Lewis Hall, who the poor man can't score but does everything else right. And and just ride that sort of wave. Start seeing what <clears throat> the guys that are gonna be here for three, four, five years can do for you now and see, you know, where the coaching points need to be, what their weaknesses at the Premier League level are. So I had I had zero complaints about this lineup. You know, we we asked for Aspie to get benched. And Trevor came back and had probably arguably his best game of the season. So, yeah, I, I want to keep seeing this uh, younger 
sides and, and allow them to make the mistakes. Let's just see how far that can go. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the first player, because you kind of mentioned it, you know, Lewis Hall was a, one of the standout players and he had, you know, arguably one of his best games in a Chelsea kit. I think you can point at three or four of these guys and say that they had their best game of the season. Um, but before we get into those, I want to talk about the bad men. Benoit, the bad man, body Andres, I was so impressed with, uh, with his debut. With um, my nickname for him? Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> your nickname. Uh, I, I'm going to run through his stats, and then I'm, I, I want to talk about him a bit, because I, I, I couldn't wait to record this episode just so I could heap some praise. But four tackles on the match, 11 out of 14 duels won. Five of them were aerial duels. He had nine total clearances, which was the most uh, in the entire match for both teams. 96% pass completion, and those included three successful long balls. So, um, you know, the the last couple stats are what I want to focus on. The ball retention and the ability to play passes accurately, but also play those progressive passes. And the thing that impressed me the most, Andres, was how calm he was on the ball. I mean, I know the guy's only, what, 20 or 21, but... He doesn't panic under pressure. There were certain times where he'd received the ball, and what the one thing, the first thing I noticed was he'd open his body up every single time he'd receive it. So his first touch is always damn good, if not perfect. And then the second thing is, if the pass isn't there, he doesn't just hoof it up the field. He takes his time. He waits for the defense to make their move first, reads it, and then decides what he's going to do next. So a couple times I noticed Thiago Silva giving him the ball. Jorginho wasn't necessarily dropping in quickly enough for, so Badiashil can get it to him in one or two touches. Badiashil would control it, wait, and then the second they started to press him, he would take a touch away from the pressure and immediately play the pass to Jorginho. Or, if that pass still wasn't there after taking the touch away from pressure, he has the, the, the awareness to clear it. At the very least. So I know that's something Graham Potter spoke about after the game and said that, you know, he clear he cleared the ball whenever he needed to and he did that plenty, which is totally fine with me. The 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 thing that strikes me with him is I do see a sort of Rolls Royce type of defender in him, as opposed to the gritty, you know, uh Rudiger Chalaba type. Um, this is a guy who remains calm in every situation, whether he's defending or he's in possession. He doesn't look frazzled by the moment. He grew in stature as the game went on. And also the aerial duels, man, that's something that really stands out to me as well. We finally have a dominant physical presence in the back line outside of Thiago Silva on set pieces. So all in all, I mean, I'm going to give him a 9 out of 10 on the debut. I don't think he put a foot wrong. I think the only thing he was missing was a goal. And, and that's harsh talking about a center back. What do you think? Yeah, that, that's as good as it's going to get for this current side, right? You know, you don't, you don't need him to be scoring right now. Right now, we just need to make sure we're not leaking the goals. And at the end, when it got sweaty, it, he was still one of the better guys in the right place. You know, he had a, I think it was him that had a slide tackle on the left side of the box later into the match when Palace was really pushing for a, for an equalizer. But I mean, geez, it's, it's one of those things where for all the people that say that there's been dumb spending, 
This guy was a third of the price of what we would have dropped on Gavardio. And so far, the profile seems to be a like for like. Maybe Gavardio has the higher like, starting point. But 21 years old, left-footed, has an extremely good range of passing. It's, yeah, I mean, when was the last time we had a center back that was six foot four? So it's exciting. Yeah. It's exciting for sure. It's, it's one of those things where... Fatty Ashiel and, and Levi Colwell will have to duke it out for years to come for that left center back position. We, we're setting ourselves up pretty well with this guy. I mean, who's to say that we can't play with two left-footed center backs in a back four? I mean, all those times we've I mean, seen two or, right-footed center backs. Or three at the back in like a more progressive way. You never know. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah you never know. It's a possibility. Fofana, you would think, is is the other guy starting next. To, we can't forget about his talent. but Yeah. I, I the the point remains. I want him to bench Koulibaly. That's as simple as it gets. I I want this guy to keep starting until he has a a nightmare of a match. I don't I think, want to to rely on on veteran experience against Liverpool this next weekend when Koulibaly's experience is not Premier League experience anyway. So yeah, yeah. I think the the best comparison is you know whenever. Zuma broke into the side with under Mourinho and he was next to JT. While Zuma is the gritty, like just get in there and fight. This guy is, is, you know, he speaks French with Thiago Silva. So it's just, he's getting coached as he's playing. So you have the, the experience and then the young guy that can probably cover your athletic <laughs> um, lack of athletic capability. So to me, this is a good partnership. It also makes us less one-dimensional because Tiago is not the only guy that can pass out of the back now. There was times where I was like, whoa, buddy, Shield, don't, you don't need to be the one trying that pass. And afterwards, he'd be the one making it. You said it was three long balls completed. I'm pretty sure that was three out of four. So yeah. it's just nuts. His passing numbers were 71 out of 74. So for three incompletions, one of them was a long ball. It's nuts, man. I, I'm yeah. sure... And you talked about he didn't score, but I, with his size, it's only a matter of time till his head finds a ball for corner. So, again, perfect, perfect display for me, and I hope he starts continuously. I don't, I don't have the stat in front of me, so I can't confirm it, but I'm gonna say it anyways. But I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that um, he he had the highest aerial duel success rate in Europe last season. Um, I don't know yeah. if that's true. Somebody fact check me, but. Heard it on a podcast. Can't remember which one. Um, at Wilson for USA tweeted at us. He said, is Badiashil more composed on the ball than Koulibaly and Rudiger? Before Tuchel. He looked calm, even when under pressure. So, I, I mean, I think we kind of answered his question here. He definitely looks calmer on the ball than Koulibaly. He's way more assured of himself. And I mentioned that first touch. I think the first touch is absolutely everything. Koulibaly has the first touch of Romelu Lukaku. And Badiashil has the first touch of a Thiago Silva. Um, and I think that's really the main marker when you're looking at these defenders in terms of how well they're able to do in possession. It's not necessarily the range of passing because you're not asking these guys to play the difficult progressive ball every single time. A lot of times it's just about keeping it simple um, and having a perfect first touch or a damn good first touch definitely makes playing simple much easier. Um, so I think that's the main thing with Body Ashil that I notice. Um, in terms of comparing him to Rudiger, Andres, maybe you can get in on this a little bit. I think it's a little too soon. Rudiger was really good on the ball, man. 
they're talking pre-Tuchel, and if we're really going to get to that, Rudiger was fourth in the depth chart of center backs yeah. pre-Tuchel. So I think that's a little – you can't really compare that version of Rudiger. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I was going to say is if you even think like, oh, maybe he's not more composed than Koulibaly, I can tell you Potter believes so because he brings on Koulibaly late in the match to you know add height, whatever you want to call it, to, to just secure the win. And you would think that the left-footed guy would go out to left back. But Potter said, no, 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 no. Ben, Benoit stays at center back. Koulibaly, get your old ass to fullback. Yeah. So if you're, if you're asking who the manager right now is trusting to, to win the ball in the middle and, and do the right thing after he wins it, it's, it's Benoit Badiashil. Now, in terms of Rudiger, the difference is, is very clear. Rudiger was good at passing, but he preferred to dribble up the pitch after he won it. From just this one match under us, because I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I watched every single one of his Monaco matches, I think Badiashil pre- prefers to move the ball up with a pass and just let the midfielders take care of the rest. Like, that's not, I'm not about to pretend that I'm some sort of Kovacic and dribble through the middle. So, mm-hmm. to me, that's fine because the thing that kills us, and I haven't talked about this in a while, is how long it takes us to move the ball from our initial third to their final third and how it just completely clogs up the attack so if body is going to be on my five second Mourinho first stint rule of getting the ball up the pitch as quickly as possible more power to him because Mm -hmm. i i hope he keeps that up i hope that that's the instruction that we're going to keep preaching we need to our center backs to be moving that ball forward and it comes very natural to him I think the marker for um, seeing where Koulibaly is in a depth chart is really going to be against Liverpool. If he starts Badi Ashil, Koulibaly's days are numbered here at Chelsea Football Club because you still have Fofana coming back um, and Levi Colwell's getting about to get a call up to the English national team before even putting in a cap at senior level at senior level for Chelsea. So. The competition is going to be ridiculous uh, next season, long story short. And I think if any of those guys didn't do themselves any favors this season, it's definitely been Koulibaly. He started out well, but he, he's tailed off ever since Tuchel left, honestly. We, we really haven't seen any sort of decent match from him under, uh, under Graham Potter. Um, at Willie B, um, did want to mention something since we were talking about Koulibaly slotting in at left back. He said, like Mourinho taught us long ago, tall players FC is a good strategy. And I love that Mourinho strategy of having an average height in your back line um, just as a, as a necessary precaution, I guess you could say, because that's how Mourinho lined his teams up, very cautious. But, um, I mean, he has a good point. We did look defensively solid. And I know, you know, we, we'll talk a little, bit, a little bit about Lewis Hall later, but... I know Lewis Hall had some moments there where maybe there was a lapse in judgment or he made a mistake. I mean, that's going to happen. He's 18. It doesn't mean he played poorly, but the rest of the defense didn't seem phased by that. Tiago Silva had another incredible game. Um, I thought Chalaba on the right-hand side was awesome as well. So I think all of those things kind of contribute to Badia Shield's performance as a whole. Um, but anyways, um, you know, that's our, that's our new signing. I want to talk about some of the players that had redemption matches because if you guys listened to our last episode, we had some pretty scathing reviews about most of the squad, um, including these three players. So the first one I want to talk about or four players, rather first one I want to talk about is Connor Gallagher. Um, Andres, dare I say it, this is his best match of the season for us. 
kid was absolutely everywhere. And uh, at CFC, Ronnie agrees with us. He says, I'm saying this is Gallagher's best match in a Chelsea shirt. I wholeheartedly agree. I think he was the heart and soul of that midfield. He was the engine that drove us. He was absolutely everywhere on the pitch. Did a great job on the right side covering Ziyech when Ziyech would push forward. And also the interchange with Ziyech. Sometimes Ziyech would tuck in and Gallagher would push out wide and, um, you know, look to play a ball in or, or beat his man 1v1. Um, the ball retention, the passing, uh, the pressing ability, the physicality. And the thing I love the most, Andy, was the shit housing. Um, He's buddies with that Crystal Palace team, and he was shithouser number one on our roster. Uh, number two, number two. We can't forget what Keppa after Keppa, After what Keppa did, yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, the point being, um, he goes chest-to-chest with Mark Gahey and uh, isn't phased at all by it. Their history doesn't mean shit because uh, he's backing up his football club. So I made a bet with you guys. I said Connor Gallagher was going to be a net positive by the end of the season. And I know it's been rocky up to this point, but he's finally, and I called for this last podcast. I don't want to see him in a double pivot. I don't want to see him play right wing back. He was, but he was, he was, was, but he was also given the license to push up and press forward. And so, so I think, I think it wasn't necessarily a traditional pivot that we're used to seeing like a, like a Sesk and Matic pivot where they both kind of sitting in the pocket and, and, and operating from there. I think when we were in possession, Gallagher was given a license to overlap, underlap, push forward, um, and and get into the box and try to get on the end of things at times as well. This is a position that I want to see him deployed more often in. Whether or not he's flanking a a holding midfielder or, um, you know, he's sitting in a double pivot, if that's going to be the case, he needs to be given a license to roam just like he did here. I mean, I think, I think the kid is has that type of playing style where he just sort of needs to express himself. You can't really put him in a box because he's not going to necessarily stay there. Yeah, I, I think it, it kind of goes hand in hand with what the instructions were for the other two guys that we're about to mention. I think Chalaba was inverted. I, I didn't see Chalaba trying to do the typical overlapping stuff that we see Reese James be so good at. And I think, thank God, finally Potter had a light bulb moment. There's no need to send geriatric Aspie down the flank anymore. Just have Chalaba take off that space that he would have in, in a back three almost beside, almost level to Jorginho, but also beside Connor Gallagher. I also think Gallagher, you're right, he is better as a box-to-box midfielder, but I felt he was, he understood his assignment this time around. Like, sure, he was still all over the place. The guy went up and had like 23 ground duels, which we see every time he's still got his typical yellow, all that stuff. But you also have to put into perspective, Ziyech is the kind of guy that wants the ball to his feet and then lets himself see what's going on around him, which allows Gallagher then to make those overlapping runs through midfield past the defensive line and such. So you have a, a right back that's inverted covering, uh, you know, that sort of midfield space. And then you have a right winger who is not, you know, just asking for the through ball. He wants it to feet. So who's going to be the runner in this situation? It's Gallagher. So I think, tactically speaking, it plays to all of his strengths. Yes, he's lined up in a double pivot, but you're right. He's not being asked to be the Montage to assess. He's being told that, hey, you're really just going to be the guy that distracts everyone else, whether you're on or off the ball. So 
yeah, I think this is the best way of deploying him if he is going to be in a double pivot. And yeah, it, it could turn around his trajectory in, in a Chelsea uniform because I thought the the Gallagher double pivot project was was done, that it was just mm-hmm. never again sort of situation. And, and this could really be the solution while Zakaria is gone. Yeah. Um, I'm sure the Kovacic-Jorginho double pivot will make its return soon enough. But, you know, neither of those guys can play 90s back to back to back to back. So if it comes down to it, you know, keep keep giving this a shot because you're right. His with his engine and his ability to to keep it simple in his weird erratic way. Like you're not going to see Gallagher take on three guys on the dribble. You're not going to see all this stuff like, yes, when he should just cross it on the ground, he's going to laser it across the box in the air, which are all just Mistakes of a young guy trying to do his part, but it worked in this sort of setup. So yeah, I, I'm I'm okay with with what the experiment looked like. I thought he was fantastic, uh, and definitely definitely a bounce back performance for him. Yeah, I mean, I guess the best way to describe his game is he's a disruptor. I think defensively he's a disruptor. He's always the first one pressing the ball, and then. When we are in possession and he gets possession, it's it's a quick pass. It's one or two touches and he's getting rid of it. Like you said, he's not over elaborating. He's not trying to take his man on every time. Um, when his game is simplified, he looks ten times a player that we've seen, you know, leading up to this point. So good on him. I mean, this was a, in my opinion, it would have been a man of the match level performance if it wasn't for guys like Ziyech and Keppa in this game, who were both phenomenal as well. Um, but before we get to them two, I do want to talk about Chalaba. You mentioned him earlier, playing on the right side of that back four. Obviously told not to press forward. Um, Lewis Hall was was the one given the license to go forward. And then naturally, we sh- we defend in a back three, um, which is right up Chalaba's alley. Um, nine out of 11 duels won in total. And to be honest with you, I think he redeemed himself after struggling against City. And, you know, I said it last week on the podcast when there was criticism about him. I wasn't really too hung up on his individual performance because if, you, if you're playing out of position anywhere on the pitch against a team like Manchester City, and then you compound that with the fact that your team is in, I don't want to even want to say no form. I think we were in negative form. <laughs> it was that bad at one point. It's, it, it's, you're basically asking for trouble at that, at, at that point, right? And um, I do want to see this again. I mean, I think if Reese James is going to remain out um, naturally, we would want to get width from one of our fullbacks. And if Reese is going to be out, then Lewis Hall has to be the shoe-in on the other side until, until Chilwell gets healthy because he looks way more comfortable getting forward than a Kukurea does. Um, and then, like I said, when that happens, we shift into a back three. Jorginho sits in front of that back three and just kind of reads and disrupts play from there. Um, and we look really comfortable overall. So it was a good performance from Chalaba, man. I'm I'm over the moon that we saw a redemption from him because if his poor form continued through the through the rest of the season just looking at this mentality that ownership has of you know we're going to clean we're going to clear this squad out basically and bring in our guys unless some of the guys we have are suitable i think chalaba was one of those guys that's on the fence that could have gone Uh, either way i don't know he got a big long contract i just think like the fans that would be saying like oh he could have been starter level. It shouldn't have been Fofana that we signed. I think that conversation would have died immediately um, had he continued his run of bad form. I think at the end of the day, I think 
it's just one of those things where it's time we flipped our our approach on which fullback goes and which one stays. There is no right-sided fullback that's going to mimic Reese James right now in the squad, yeah. period. So there's no need to to keep trying to force that down the right side. Again, I also think Ziyech benefits from not overcrowding the right side. It gives him more space to operate. So, so this is where I think we're now finally seeing Potter's coaching mentality because Chalaba plays, like I said, he's st- staying as a right back, but really he's a right center back. And you again, the Gallagher thing, that's coaching. That, that was a coach decision to play him in that sort of role. So to me, keeping Chalaba as the inverted right back, maybe this is why we're not just throwing money at any single right back in the market because this can get us to the summer and really get the right guy. But it's, it's necessary. I, I don't know. Like you talked about like committing to Lewis Hall on the left side. I'm at a point where I'm not sure if if we'll go with that for next match just because I expect Mikhail Mudrik to to play at left wing and he is a get uh, maybe it would play to to Lewis Hall's advantage. Uh, never mind. I'm going off the tracks here. But Chalba playing well at right back was huge because that has been our make or break. Whether it's moving forward or or defending. It's been a situation where it's a it's a double jeopardy for us. We can't move forward up the right, and then when we get attacked down our right flank, it's a danger every single time. So for Chalaba to be, you know, backed up by Thiago Silva and told like, hey, we don't need you to be way, way up, it's a win-win for the guy. And get some minutes, and if the Ben White role is, is what he needs this season to get his minutes and get his confidence back, I'm all for it. Yeah, I mean, look. We we're not uh, Reese comes in and he's a nine or a ten out of ten every single week. We just need a seven to get us across the yeah. line. And I think Chalaba is the only one that we can look at within the squad that can consistently do that. It's not to say Dave is completely incapable at this point, but he's not going to be doing it week in and week out. And I think Chalaba can. <laughs> I think it is. Dave is. is incapable. Period. We don't have yeah. Carabao Cup matches anymore. This yeah. is it. That's a good point. Um, I do want to move on to the next uh, the next player here, and this is another guy who I mentioned earlier um, probably robbed Gallagher of his man of the match, Hakeem Ziyech. Um, he was ridiculous on the day. Uh, 85 total touches. Um, just to give you an idea of how involved he was, Mount only had 53 um, Connor Gallagher was the only other attacker with more touches, and I don't even know if you could call him an attacker because, like we mentioned earlier, he was playing in a double pivot. Gallagher had 93 touches, only eight less than Hakeem Ziyech. So easily our two most involved outfield players on a day completed four out of five dribbles and had the assist. Andres, take it away. Let's analyze his performance a bit. Credit to the coach again. We are letting Hakim Ziyech do what Hakim Ziyech does. He doesn't have to defend. He doesn't have to run in behind. Get the ball to his feet and let him do whatever the fuck he wants with that left foot of his. The fact that it came down to the mediocrity of Kai Havertz for us to not have four goals on the score sheet. The poor man, Ziyech, could be top five assists in the Premier League. He creates... There's... Actually, I'm perfect time to bring this up because I've noticed that Ziyech's role recently has 
changed and his attitude while playing in a Chelsea jersey has changed. And I really do think that the results have really made us not see the work going on behind the scenes. Uh, I'm going to credit at expected Chelsea for this. In our last two matches, 35 shots, 27 shots inside the box, eight big chances created, seven big chances missed. And I think that all starts with Hakim Ziyech being able to just puppeteer the attack at times. The ball gets out to the right. He is always looking to kill him with a cross. There was the one that we remember where both Aubameyang and Pulisic missed it in the back post. We can recall three or four chances that he probably put on a platter for Kai today. The one that Kai put over in the first half with diagonal from Ziyech. The easiest one that he probably should have scored, right. So mm-hmm. the way I see it is you're giving him the freedom that he so desires and loves and, and less is more. Less instructions is more for Ziyech. You let mm-hmm. him do what he's good at. Now, you know, people are like, oh, mercenary, blah, 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 blah. I don't give a fuck. We don't have many options, and at least it's he's heating up at the right time yet again. When we were in an awful run of form last January, it was him who was getting us out of trouble. And honestly, I, I think every other website had a different man of the match. I think nobody actually had Ziyech on there. It was either Thiago Silva or Kepa for most places. But my God, if, if, if Kai or, or Mount or anybody else could just tap one in, this dude's stat line would be one of the prettiest creative stat lines out there. Yeah. So I'm like, like, okay, he's going to get a little help hopefully with Mudrik, but potentially playing next match when Felix can also join this attack. It's just, I can't wait. I can't wait for that. And yeah, I, I think that he's been one of the reasons that it's looked like, it's one of those things as Chelsea fans, we don't think anything is ever going to end up in the back of the net. But the chances of them of those things happening have increased a lot recently, and I think a lot comes down to Ziyech playing on that right side um, mm. so far. So for me, there's two... I mean, I agree with everything you said. I, I don't really want to over-elaborate on any of it, but I want to focus on where this is all coming from because, you know, we, we do talk... We did talk a lot of shit about him last season. We talked some shit about him this season. Me especially, I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say that I criticize him and I've been wanting him to go for a while now. But for me, there's two real reasons why he's, why he's playing the way he's playing. The first one being he wants to play himself into the January window, which is understandable if that's the case. That's the obvious reason. The second reason is maybe he's looking at this team and saying, okay, this is my absolute last chance to make an impression because you've already signed three attackers in this window. And if I don't make my impression this time around, I'm for sure gone in the summer. Um, So I'd like to be the optimist and think that it's the second scenario and just think that, hey, he's screwing his head on straight. He wants to work his way into the team. But logic tells me it's probably the first. Um, Either way, the guy needs to keep playing. And he needs to keep getting the minutes because... The one big mistake that we've seen managers make, and especially under Tuchel, was that he would play Ziyech, and then we wouldn't see him for three or four matches. And then he gets cold again. And I think Ziyech is the type of player where you can't really call him up once every three or four matches and tell him to pull a moment of magic out of his ass. He needs to be warm, he needs to be fresh, and he also needs to feel involved. He needs to be babied a little bit in the managerial sense. The psychological sense as well. I think Ziyech feels... I think Ziyech needs to feel important in order to be productive within a team. And 
like you said, Graham Potter looked at the team selection and he lined us up in a way that allowed Ziyech to flourish and allowed him to have no excuse not to play well. Leaving Chalaba back and letting Ziyech operate in that space, having Kai operate as a center forward and look to get on the ends of crosses. He probably could have had a hat trick, like you said. Um, all of, and, and also having Connor Gallagher covering his side as well defensively, which, which helped Ziyech a lot. It didn't really give him the responsibility to come back as much um, and, and it allowed him to stay forward and you know operate in the areas that he wanted to. I like this Hakeem Ziyech. And, and the only thing that I'm thinking now is, and it's a what if, do me, but what if we had another manager at some point during Hakeem Ziyech's career who was just willing to do this from the beginning? I think we would have had a way different outlook on him as a player as a whole. I mean, under Lampard, he was our best player. Like, One if you of- remember, like... Every single match was like Hakim Siyash to assist. Hakim Siyash six chances created. It was nuts. It was nuts, and it was tailored to to what he does best. He was given that right wing, and he was just like, "All right, dude, do you put him into the back post?" Um, I agree with you though. I I don't know if it's the January window because at the end of the day, every link out there dies with his wages. If to me, it's him showing the potential bidders like, "Hey, maybe those wages." are okay like i am gonna get my money's worth for what he currently is getting paid because that's what's holding it back for time and time again it seems like chelsea's valuation has been okay to other clubs in terms of the transfer it's the wages that are holding him back mm-hmm. um ac milan didn't want to uh pay the wages and ajax can't like ajax in their model can't be paying him what we've been paying him so I think that's really been the reason that he's not been able to move, but we'll get to the transfer stuff later. There, there might be mm-hmm. a new, a new part, uh, party involved now. Um, the last player I want to mention is Kepa. Um, I mean, as a, as a whole, this was the definition of a redemption performance from him. We criticized him last match for just being, actually the last two matches against City, to be fair just being flat-out awful. Um, he had five saves on the day, um, and three of those were from shots that were inside of the box. One, one of those saves that was outside of the box was probably the one that saved us all three points. Dukure's ridiculous volley that came out of nowhere, going top bins, got laces on it. I mean, I don't think you hit a volley much better than that. And Kepa just did a great job staying light on his feet, moving his feet positioning himself well enough and having a strong hand to to parry it right out of bounds. Where do we stand with Keppa, man? Because I'm at the point where I keep thinking about the question you asked me a few weeks ago when you said, if Keppa keeps playing well, do we need to go out and replace him next summer? And I'm going to stand by my statement and say yes. I still think we need to go after another keeper. Not to say that I don't think Keppa could do a job, but for me, it's about finding somebody that's consistent. And, and yes, Keppa's been good for the majority of the season when called upon, and he's only had a handful of poor performances. But if you have one bad performance out of 10 as a keeper at this level, I mean, that's not very good. I mean, I think you need to pretty much have one or two mistakes in you all season. Um, to be a true title-winning 
elite European goalkeeper. I mean, what do you think? Are you in the same boat, or are we still supporting Kepa in the sense that we want him here next year? No, I, I, I think Kepa's another guy that's probably playing for, for a transfer. I think he knows his time here is, is more likely, you know, a countdown. I don't... For the heights that Chelsea wants to get to, you need something more concrete, something more safe and goal. I applaud Kepa's redemption. I applaud what he's done recently. And, you know, I talked about just like, I don't want to sign something crazy in January. It just, it has to always be a good performance. It has to be a, oh man, that, that, that was for sure a goal. You know, when we concede, it can't be, damn it, Kepa, Kepa, Vintage Kepa. Like that can't be something in our in our vocabulary if we want to be immediately back in the top four conversation next year. If we immediately want to be title challengers again. Look at City. Ederson, like you said, one or two bad moments. Allison, the man even saved Liverpool from not making top four with a header one year. It it has to be to that level. Now the question remains is who is that guy going to be? And I, that's my concern. I don't know. I, I, to be fair, I don't know enough about keepers in Europe. I, I don't have a list of keepers. The ones we all know are the ones that are not going anywhere. You know? So it's tough. It's tough. I think it's great that we've been able to get sort of our, our bang for our buck this year. Like, oh, finally kept up doing something good again because between Mendy's bad form and now his injury – He's been our only option, and it's been more good than bad overall, but it's not title contender level or Spain call-up level. You know, he didn't go to the World Cup still, even though at one point we were shouting for him to be player of the month for the Premier League. So, again, extremely happy for the guy. I think that other clubs across Europe – could comfortably look at Kepa and think that he can do a job for them. I'm looking at the Serie A clubs, the La Liga clubs. Like there's somebody out there can do it. Question is, what are we going to do about his wages? Because he was also a guy that got a huge pay raise the moment we signed him. So again, people asking like, oh, how is the clear out going to happen? Why haven't we cleared out players? Ask the old ownership. Because these mega contracts are past sins. They're not current. The only mega contract we probably regret right now is the Koulibaly one. And that was because, again, we were trying to please Tuchel with players. Mm -hmm. They don't align with what we've seen for the future signings. So, yeah, I'm not sold on Kepa for the long term, but I think he's doing himself a lot of help for, for what his stock and what his market may look like in the summer. And credit to his mentality, man. I know it goes, um, it's fiance. It's the fiance. I don't know what it is, but keep doing what you're doing. It's working. <laughs> um, I want to move on from the positive and talk about some of the things that still need to be mentioned or worked on, or I don't even know how you want to put it. But Kai and Mason Mount were not good in this game again, and you can look at the score sheet and say we're being harsh on Kai, but. The man probably should have had a hat trick. Um, Outside of the goal, he really didn't do much. He still missed some big chances, missed two big chances. Um, 
wasn't able to complete either of his uh, dribble t- dribble attempts, and he only won seven out of eighteen duels, which is um, pretty damning, honestly. And Mount, on the other hand, same thing, pretty much non-existent. When he was deployed out wide, he dropped into midfield later on. He struggled on the ball. He didn't create. And um, and he missed so many opportunities to play his teammates in. He missed Aubameyang twice um, on these little short diagonals. And then he also missed Kai Havertz as well. There was one play in particular where Havertz missed the header. Uh, Mount with the cross in the second half. Kind of, he laced it. I felt like he shouldn't. He should have more, or he should have taken a little off of it and more floated it towards Kai. He had plenty of time and space to do so. That way, Ty, Kai gets a tap in. And instead, he just kind of panics, and the composure just isn't there at the moment for either of them, unfortunately. Um, And thankfully, you know, Kai did get us the goal that won us the game. But like I said, I mean, outside of that, there was really nothing. So this is my concern, Andres. Um, I think we're starting, I think this season we figured out who Kai really is, not in terms of how he plays, where he plays, that kind of thing. I think Kai is a function of his environment. I think he plays according to how the team around him is playing. And I think having quality elite players around him elevates his game. He's not the type of player to elevate it himself and um, and kind of will, him, will his team across the line. And then Mason Mount, on the other hand, for me, he's just not that player that is going to set the world alight. He's not the type of player that's going to take a game by the scruff of the neck and just dominate it for 10, 15-minute periods. Um, He's the type of player that he's going to fit in a system, he's going to do his job, and he's probably going to give you a 7 out of 10, and you shouldn't really expect anything more than that. It's a cynical outlook on Mount, a more cynical outlook on Kai, but, I mean, just based on the evidence this season, they really haven't shown us much. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit more down on on Mount recently, more so than Kai. We saw, I, I just don't think those two guys have ever had the best chemistry. And you can say, oh, but the pass in the Champions League, that was Mount to Kai. Yeah, it was. But how many other times have we not seen these two guys connect? The numbers are, that might be the only time that I think Mount has assisted Kai. Off the top of my head, I really, really could say that that might be his only assist to Kai. I just think they don't understand each other. I don't think Mount is the creative kind of guy that sees the game in like a risky one-two pass kind of thing. He's the kind of guy that's going to make the long run, get into the box, and finish the shot. He is the late arriver. He is the guy shooting from distance. That's who he is. Now, Kai, he was interviewed after the match, you know, because he did score. And he was asked, you know, about the goal. And he said, it's a, thank God I finally scored kind of thing. I'm glad it was the winner. But then he was also asked, you know, on another day, it could have been a hat trick. And his answer was, you know, I'm not typically a number nine, but I do take the responsibility when I don't put them in the back of the net. I wasn't signed here as a guy that scores 30, 30 goals a season. That's not who I usually am. Again, I am playing the nine right now and I'll take responsibility with something along those lines. And then reports today from David Ornstein says that Chelsea see Kai as a 10 in the long-term future. So, so again, here's my thing. How did Kai look with Jao Felix? Better. He looked lively. There was combinations. There was passes that put Jao Felix into scoring positions. Now, Mount on the other end, when played at the 10, it's never a 10-like 
game. And and last season, I know that Mount had like the most goals plus assists in the league, but he was cherry picking Norwich. Like if you go back and look, he had a hat trick one time against Norwich, two more goals against Norwich. He, those were the games where he shined against teams that gave up along the lines of 80 plus goals in a season. So I'm looking. Ah, that's that's let's get into Michael Conan's question, because I feel like I'm about to answer it. Yeah, yeah. So I'll go ahead and read it really quick. Michael Conan asked us, and he actually changed his handle. He's at like Michael nine. So <laughs> hell yeah, that's it's pretty catchy. Assuming Felix is signed permanently, would you sign Mount to a long-term contract, or would you take a good offer for him? His form has been down all season, and he also killed the tax today. I also don't know if he starts with Felix and Kunku and Mudrik. Okay. So, I agree with that second part. I don't know if in a four... From what our, our targets have been and who we've signed so far, the 4-2-3-1 seems to be at least the next version of this Chelsea team. It seems to be a double pivot with an attack in front of it. You have Mudrik on the left side. We're linked to Madueke on the right side. Jao Felix apparently is somebody we're going to try to sign on a permanent. He is the 10. Then you have Nkunku, who is maybe more of a, a 10 slash false 9 guy. And again, you have Kai Havertz, who is also more of a 10 false 9 guy. So where does that put Mount? Because on top of all this, you also have Raheem Sterling. You have Omari Hutchinson. So, and Carney Chukwameka, who has also been more threatening in transition when playing in those attacking mid-rolls. Do I want to sign Mountain Extension? Yes, I do. I think there is still a player there. But I think that we need to start letting Mount play what Gallagher played this weekend. It's time for Mount to go through a evolution, conversion. Mount is not a creative hub. How did Mount win us over when he first made this team? Running his ass off, making hard tackles, being everywhere, being that energizer bunny that matched sort of Conte's energy levels. That's what made him so popular in our eyes. I don't think that this team can count on Mount to be the assist leader. And, and why does he have a lot of assists? Homie takes all the set pieces. Like that really fluffs those numbers. But Mount is not going to be your Juan Mata. Mount is not going to be your Cesc Fabregas. Mount is not going to be, to use current players, your Odegaard, your De Bruyne, your Bruno if you want a scoring 10. That is not who Mount is. He is a center mid, box to box by heart. And if we're going to sign a Caicedo and we still don't know where these Enzo rumors are, give it a shot. The way Gallagher played today... I think today Mount can do a better job of that. It's just a matter of I would I would beg to differ. So what do you think? I I mean, if that's not what's going to happen, I don't think Mount has a future. No, I I I think I think Mount could play there. Look, I've been preaching this since day one. I've been wanting to see Mount in a double pivot as the as in the in the exact role Gallagher played, where he can go forward, he can he can push out wide when he feels like it. He could just kind of pick and choose where he wants to operate, but. In terms of actual profile, I think Gallagher fits the bill for the Premier League much better than Mount does. The physicality, energy-wise, they're the same player. They're both incredible when it comes to high-pressing or counter-pressing. But Gallagher just has that physicality aspect that Mount just doesn't. 
he has that bite in his tackle. And I, I, I just I, I just see Mount getting pushed off the ball too often. I see him getting out muscled too often and being beaten for size and strength. And I think Gallagher has a little bit more snap in him, um, more of a willingness to defend himself in those kind of situations. So I don't know. My thing with Mount is this is a period in his career where it's arguably going to be the toughest period he ever goes through because now he goes from you know, being a, a nailed-on starter in a Champions League winning team to being on the periphery of you know, even being on the team next season in terms of starting every match week in and week out. He needs a metamorphosis, like you said, and and, and I think a huge. I I think I think it would hugely benefit him to just drop him for a while. And I know we've said this a lot, but like, Mount has outside of Thiago Silva, I think Mount's played the most minutes for us, and I just think a little spell on the sidelines might not be the worst thing in the world for him in terms of just get your head on straight. You know, reevaluate your game. Let's coach you up over these next, you know, week, two weeks, and as to how to play the double pivot or how to play in a midfield three, whatever Potter's vision for him is, and then give him another chance. I feel like playing him week in and week out, over and over and over. It's the definition of madness. I mean, you you're doing the same thing over and over again with the same result, and it's different than the Kai situation because with the Kai situation, we don't really have another striker outside of Aubameyang. I know there's Fafana, and we all want to see him, but. Potter's been very reluctant to even play him at all. So it's different from the Kai situation because I feel like there are other players that could operate in Mount's position. And, and also, know. to a side note, random, but Aubameyang was, was decent off the bench. I yeah, say he that. was. I thought he, His he work rate was decent. good. Yeah, yeah he, I thought he, he looked like he had a point to prove. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, the Mount one's tough because I don't want to let him go, but at the same time, I don't think he deserves nailed-on starter money. Mm-hmm. So, again, I, I talked last week about, well, if we deploy sort of the Christmas tree formation, right, the four-three-two one, where you have two floating attacking mids, but then that's almost like an adaptation of what you would want to do week in and week out if we are to believe that Mudrik can come in and, and just sort of not even just Mudrik, because you have Sterling. So, like, the four-two-three-one gets you more talent on the pitch. You know, we, we are not a goal-scoring team. We should probably add the extra starter, uh, the extra attacker. Mm-hmm. So, it's tough. If you told me that the signings we made this, this January pointed at a four-three-three, then I'm like, okay, mound at the eight makes sense. But everything that we have that has come across everything that we've seen get done left winger Fabrizio is retweeting all the the Nkunku stuff again, which makes me think that that's about to be made official, even though he's not coming till the summer Felix, everything that we've seen means that he, we're going to go all in on getting him across the line in the summer. The Madueke guy right wing may not be a sure made starter, but we've seen Sterling be played on the right side recently too, and done. Okay. So, Mount needs to get his shit together, whether it's reinventing himself, like we said, or or somehow making himself useful in a, in a attacking three behind a striker. Because as of right now, he is not adding much to to what Chelsea's trying to put out on the pitch. Yeah, I mean, I want to get into the transfers a little bit because you know we mentioned a few of the names already. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is Levi Colwell, and uh, he's in the extension talk. So 
He's balling. The club is looking next at his contract. This is amidst him balling for Brighton, who also are interested in either signing him permanently or taking him on loan back next season. It's not happening. None of that is happening. Why else would a kid who plays at Brighton be sitting next to the owners in the box this weekend? Listen, yeah, he was there. I'm, I'm just, I'm just the bearer of bad news. Don't shoot me for it. Um, look, I said it before. I'll say it again. If he continues the way he's playing, I wouldn't put it past anybody if we saw two left-footed center backs start some games for Chelsea next season. Wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, especially if they're playing up to that caliber. And something I noticed with Colwell, because I actually watched a Brighton game um, against Liverpool. And his one-on-one defending is actually what really impressed me. He's very composed when he's in a 1v1 situation. He doesn't go diving into tackles. He doesn't go lunging and trying to win the ball. He maintains, he maintains his posture. He stays in between himself. Uh, he stays in between the ball and the, and, the, uh, and the keeper. He looks like a really, really solid defender, man. And I think, again, I use the term Rolls-Royce for a body of shield. I think you use the same exact term for Levi Koval because essentially it's a similar profile. A cool, calm, collected, young, left-footed, ball-carrying center back. Or maybe not ball-carrying, but, um, you know, neither of those guys are allergic to a decent pass. They're, they're, they're good for 90-plus percent pass completion week in and week out. So, I mean, what do you think? It's obvious that we got to extend him, but moving on yeah. to next season, I guess this is where the Koulibaly discussion happens. I mean, it's really dependent on him, isn't it? Whether he stays no, or he goes. I, I think the club's going to try to move him. I, I think in my head, you extend Thiago Silva one more year because Fofana hasn't been healthy enough to see if we're ready to, to just let him take the reins. I mean, look, next season... If we even just put up like a 50% win percentage for the rest of this season, we could potentially sneak into that new third tier European, whatever it's called, the Conference League, whatever. So that means that's still four competitions for next year. Now, we're going to be in a very unique situation where when those cup matches come around, it's not like we're going to see kids from the academy that we haven't heard of before. We're going to be seeing the kids who are already being involved with the first team get more minutes then. So if we play a back four, there's still going to be plenty of minutes for the both of them. I still am not going to erase the possibility of a, of a Potter-style back three where it's very offensive because Colwell could easily be the center guy between, you know, sandwiched between Badi Ashil on the left and Fofana on the right. And you still have Reese James and Ben Chilwell, who are for for fullback wingbacks, offensive juggernauts. So I'm not going to just say that that's not a possibility. But I think worst case scenario, Colwell and Badia Shield bring the best out of each other and compete to start for years to come. Like I don't see that as a bad thing. We had David Luiz and Cahill together fighting for a spot next to Terry for years. It was fine. There's there gonna be times where you're gonna want the six foot four guy versus the guy that maybe has the more passing range. And so to me, it makes perfect sense to to extend him, get his ass back, and again, find a way at this point. If if you are extending Colwell, Koulibaly's a goner. Find a way. 
sell him to a team and tell him you'll pay half his wages still. Whatever it may be, it's okay. If there is a time to to just bite the bullet on, on transfers, it's right now. Because you've already shown that you're going to commit to this manager for at least another year, based on what we've seen in the past two weeks. So, yeah, that's my stance on it. Yeah, I mean, moving on, um, obviously the big, biggest transfer news um, recently for Chelsea is a Mikhailo Mudrik transfer saga. We stole him from Arsenal, and we better fucking come up with some sort of he-hates-Arsenal Willian-esque chant for him. Um, He was unveiled at halftime against Crystal Palace. He just turned 22 on the 5th of January from Shakhtar. Um, 100 million pound transfer fee that's 70 million paid over eight and a half years and 30 million based on performance based add-ons now look he did agree verbally to join arsenal he did post on his social media a couple times yada 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 all that's fine and dandy but guess what arsenal is not chelsea football club they do not have the bull chelsea football club has and they also didn't uh, guarantee him uh starting minutes this season which is something that potter did mention to him when they spoke over the phone about a week ago so um he's a left-sided winger um i said he was out of shakhtar he's full of pace technically he seems like he's decent has a powerful shot on him um and he's actually popped this season as a player really really came into his own in the ukrainian premier league 12 total apps seven goals and seven assists but where he's actually made a name for himself this season is in the champions league where he scored three goals and two assists um, so in, in a total of six appearances, so five goal contributions in six. This this does look like a good signing to me, Andres, but the fee is what gets me a little worried. It does kind of stink of an Anthony type of deal, doesn't it? Sorry, froze there for a second. Um, It doesn't, it doesn't. I don't know how Man United financed the Anthony deal because they didn't offer him an 8.5 year contract. That means that they're paying bigger chunks on those 90 million. And those are guaranteed 90, if I'm not mistaken, 90, that could go up to a hundred, meaning they have to pay the 90 million and the rest comes from add-ons. Now Chelsea has to pay 70 million and those 70 million are spread over eight and a half years. And then there's 30 millions based on add-ons. So when you do the math, we're really just paying a little bit under 10 million a year on this guy. So on FFP side of things, it's only a 10 million per year cap. So when you really get into the root of it all, we only ended up paying five more million than what Arsenal offered. Mm-hmm. And the way we've structured it now, I'm sure we paid more than 10 million right now, but the way we structured it now is that we're not going to be paying more than 10 mil per season, which allows us to continue to sign other players now i'm sure his wages that we offered him compared to arsenal are also bigger arsenal reportedly gave him 40 we're reportedly giving him closer to 100 plus if there's truth to the matter that he's a starter makes sense and also he does not need to get a new salary if he suddenly does well this season because if we give him 40k and he suddenly balls out we now need to offer him a new contract again so is it a it's a it's a do, it's like a risk, but there is a method to the madness. It's a crazy number up front if when you look at it, but we haven't put any sort of shackles on ourselves in the market. And 
if let's say in three, four years, the guy does want to leave because we all know he wanted Arsenal anyway, guess what? He still has three or so years in his contract, which means his value is going to have to be more than $100 million. Yeah, exactly. So the, the way I see it, if the hype is real, because again, not a player that I followed crazily. Like I saw somebody put on Twitter, nobody can tell me you were signing Mikalo Mudrej to your FIFA career mode. Like, true. I didn't know this guy until the Arsenal rumors came up. But if he is going to start on the left side, great. He's a direct winger, which the only other guy that we had close to that was Polisic when he was healthy that one time under Project Restart. And this guy has the on record the fastest uh, sprint speed in the Champions mm-hmm. League this year. He's also a guy that has worked on himself at a young age. He like gained X amount of kilos, and now the dude is yoked compared to like some of the highlights from when he was still breaking into the first team. So he's got the right mentality and the right sort of mindset of what he needs from himself. And honestly, I don't care that he wanted to go to Arsenal. We've signed plenty of people who wanted to go elsewhere who ended up falling in love here. There is a certain guy who is legendary named DDA Drogba who didn't want to come to Chelsea. And after one year, he wanted to go back to France. It's okay that up front, a kid who fell, fell for a little bit of flirting from a big team wanted to go to them first. So I'm not bothered by this. I think it's yeah. a good deal when you look at the X's and O's of how it's all broken down. Yeah, the, the sprint speed's an interesting one for me. I, I, I think it gives us an option that we don't have with any of our other wingers because Pulisic's always injured. We don't have anybody that can really... that can beat a team just strictly off of pace. I mean, pace is the great equalizer. You look around Europe, you got guys like Mbappe and Vinicius. I mean, even the way that... And I'm not comparing them to either of those two. But even the way Manchester United use Rashford's pace to their advantage, they sit in low blocks, um, vertical passes, hit Rashford on the break, let him go to work and create and do his thing. I mean, if Mudrik really is as fast as everybody says he is, he'll just provide us so many options in terms of not only the counterattack, but with his technical ability, his, his, his ability to hit shots from outside of the box. Um, all of those things, especially considering his age, I mean, it's... It's, it's a, for me, it's high risk, high reward. And this is a risk that I think should have been taken should the opportunity present itself, and it did. So let's see what happens. He took the number 15, which will be interesting to see, a number 15 out on the wing. Um, but yeah, Mikhailo Mudrik is now a blue. Um, two other players that we're still interested in and have not cooled interest in whatsoever since signing Mudrik is Madweki from PSV. And Marcus Turam uh, from Borussia Mönchengladbach. Madueke, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm trying my best. Madueke, Madueke. I've heard it pronounced a few different ways now. Um, he's priced out at $30 million, like I said, from PSV, 21 years old. Um, he ticks the homegrown box, which is always going to be a positive because he's an English international. So this move makes sense in that sense. Um, I'm a poet and I didn't know it. Uh, Marcus Turam is another one. Um, he shined at World Cup 2022. Obviously, um, you know that's where most people will recognize his name from. He did assist Mbappe's volley goal in the final. So, um, you know, he's still riding high based on his World Cup performances. He was one of France's big impact players. 
talked about a little bit last week. He's out of contract with Borussia Mönchengladbach this summer. He already told them that he's not planning on re-signing, so if a deal is possible in January, it will be at a cut price. Um, I'm going to be honest with you, Andres. Between these two, I am a little bit more interested in signing a guy like a Marcus Turam um, over a Madueke, um, just based on the premise that the deal can come cheap, It'll allow us to invest more in other positions, and it'll also tick the box. I know Turam's a little bit older, but it's also a guy that's going to come in. He's going to be a little bit more polished. He does provide something different that we have for many of our other wing players, which is a physicality combined with the pace and combined with athleticism um, that no other guy really produces. Mudrik, maybe. We still haven't seen it. Um, but he can also play up top, which is something that I like about Turam as well. So if Kai ever goes belly up, if that if we decide to call it quits on that project, and um, and Broja's still not quite healthy, or if we just want to rotate, Turam could always play there. So out of the two, that's the one I would go for. I know a lot of people are really uh, kind of hung up on this uh, Madueke or Maduiki rumor, however you say it. Where do you kind of stand on that? Because where I'm sitting... We've already bought, what, two attackers. We're about to buy three after Joao Felix. Do we necessarily need another winger, or do you just want to see the number nine position padded a little bit? That way we have that cover for Broja and maybe even for Aubameyang if he leaves next year. Because I don't see Kai playing at the nine long term for us, especially going into next season. Once Broja's healthy, I fully expect him to come back into the fold. Yeah. And I expect guys like Mudrik, Ja, Felix, and Kunku all to play behind him. Yeah, I, I'm not, you know, Madoike is very talented. That's, you, the dude this weekend created seven chances on his own in one match. It's wild. He's really good. He's your typical right winger, right? Left footed to the core, but somehow still gets the shot off. Another big, fast, physical guy, a la Mudrik, maybe. Here's the catch, though. The dude has a shit of an injury record as Pulisic. And people love to shit on the fact that Pulisic is never healthy. So, sorry, not sorry. Are we suddenly just loving this because he's English? Like, oh, no, you didn't. I did because it, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it makes sense to like be interested in the right wing and the profile and all. But I'm just shocked that we're going to overlook the fact that the guy can't stay healthy. He's 21 years old, sure, but Pulisic is not an old fuck. You know, yeah. he's like 22, 23, so what makes these so much different? I don't understand. I If we get him, cool, let's hope he does great. Like, I really hope so. Now, the Durham one I'm also not very excited about because the guy, he's pulling... He's he's way too in control of this whole thing. I know that he can talk to whoever the hell he wants to. Maybe he even extends. This one is a little fishier for me because we would have to give him a lot of money wage-wise. I know the transfer fee is going to be small, but he's almost a free agent, meaning we would have to give him a contract that's four years, five years to keep him interested. And I don't even know if this is the sort of profile we really want to commit to. And and at this point, when there's nothing for us to really reach for, unless we run into like miraculous form for the rest of the season, I don't think we need to take this gamble. We Marcus Durham has not been in the the talks of the Project 2030 of of the likes of all these other names we've seen. 
this is an opportunistic signing, sure. But this just reeks of, of a desperation of a January signing. It reeks of like, oh, well, the nines aren't working. And at the end of the day, we have so many of these foreign guys on our team right now. We're already in a pickle when it comes to the Champions League and who we're going to register when we play again in February. You add to Ram, that's adding another player that would have to take a spot from somebody else. And, and by then, we're talking Conte maybe is back in the fold. We're talking Chilwell might be back in the fold. So you're most likely going to piss off someone that may still be here next season and, and so on to, to give a shot to one of these guys. So I'm not thrilled at, bo- at either of the, these, honestly. I, I don't think it fits the mold. I, I don't want to get a nine in January that's not been a long-term target because, again, it's, it would go against everything we've been discussing as to what this, the ownership and the board are trying to do. The Maduake one makes sense because he's 21. He, you know, he has like the data that they love to to throw in our face. But yeah, I, I can't get excited about either of these. Yeah, and th- th- none of them really get me too excited either. To be completely honest, you know what would get me excited is if we targeted a center midfielder like a Caicedo, um, who we are supposedly interested in, according to Fabrizio Romano. Nothing official has been um, made in terms of a bid, but talks have been set, and apparently we should keep our eyes on that space. Andres, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. This is the next signing that I want to see walk through the door. Um, I know the Enzo Fernandez deal, we're still supposedly working on it on their end, but if Benfica are going to be a bunch of bitches about it and ask for the $120 million up front, then they could go fuck themselves. And we'll go talk to Brighton and give them half of that money and get Caicedo. Um, I, think, I, I think it's a good move. I think it's a guy that's pretty much ready-made. He's already proven in the Premier League. He's proven under Graham Potter. He fits the bill in terms of the profile of what we need. Um, he's not necessarily a Conte replacement. And I think that's the thing people are getting confused with him. Um, you know, just because he's short and a, and a bundle of energy, people think that he's Conte 2.0, and that's not the case. Um, he's more of a box-to-box type. He does have a better range of passing than Conte, in my opinion. Uh, but defensively, he's not—he's nowhere near Angolo. I mean, let's just be honest. Nobody is. Nobody is. Nobody is. Yeah. But but in terms of profile, Andres, I mean, talk about a little bit more. This is this is exactly what we need in the midfield. Yeah, I. I couldn't be more thrilled about it. I know that the price tag is, is rumored at $70 million. And again, I think that at, the, at this point, the numbers don't really matter because we know we're going to tie him down for seven years because he has been linked for a while now. The kid's 21. The, he's got the Premier League experience. He just bossed Liverpool this past weekend. Like The, the, the clues are there of what he can do for us. And oh, lo and behold, our manager sort of got him to where he is right now. So I think that he would be the first step to what we think our double pivot of the future would be. More of the guy that's willing to do more of the defensive work. I don't think it's completely... Like you said, he's not a true DM. But if you're going to have this sort of profile from both of your players in the double pivot where they're willing to do the hard work and, and, and be involved defensively, you don't need to have just one of those guys that sits and destroys. So this is your cheaper than Declan Rice 
situation. Because again, I personally think it's a 4-2-3-1 for the next version of Chelsea. So me, I think, yeah, Caicedo could play alongside a true DM. I mean, if you give us a Zakaria Caicedo double pivot, good luck <laughs> based on how yeah. Zakaria has been playing. Um, so yeah, I think this is what's supposed to happen next. He apparently switching his representatives this week, which should open up a bit more of the discussion with us. Um, Paul was with Stansley. I can, I, I never get that when name Stanley. correctly. Yeah. He convinced Caicedo to join Brighton over Man United when that move happened. So there is already a good relationship with the player there. With Brighton, we all know is you just have to give them the money. Give them what they want, and you're going to get the player. They're not going to pull this shady shit that Benfica is going to want to do. So you can get Caicedo and still target someone like Enzo Fernandez in the summer. Caicedo, knowing the Premier League, should be a, an immediate fit and an immediate improvement to the 11 for this season. I think it makes perfect sense. I really do. Yeah, me too. And, and, and one thing, one little caveat to this signing, potential signing, because there hasn't even been a bid yet. If we do wind up signing him, it needs to be in conjunction with signing Zakaria to a permanent as well. Because there you have your starter and you have your, your reserve. Um, and like you said, you could even start both of them or play both of them at the same time. If you want to sit on a lead and just make sure that you shithouse the rest of the game and secure a 1-0 or a 2-1 or whatever it might be, you throw on Zakaria, you have him and Caicedo sitting in, just reading, breaking up play, and boom. I think that's I think that would be a very, very solid midfield. Um, but moving on, we do have some interest. Um, well, first, I guess I should say, um, the club is looking to clear out some of the toxicity. Um, they're clearing out a lot of the deadwood. And it looks like that's going to be their vision for the next uh, couple windows here. So with that being said, there has been some interest from uh, both Crystal Palace and Newcastle for guys like Connor Gallagher, Hakeem Ziyech, and Ruben Loftus-Cheek. All of this information is becoming um, is coming to light today. This is Monday, the 16th of January. So relatively new, relatively fresh. I think the only concrete details that we have regarding any is that Chelsea are not interested in letting Connor Gallagher go on loan or on a permanent. They want to keep him for the rest of the season. Um, in terms of Hakeem Ziyech and RLC, the future is pretty much up in the air for them both. So um, in my opinion, Andres, I think we're making the right call on Connor Gallagher. I'm, I'm going to stand on you know, my 10 toes from the very beginning of the season and saying that this guy is going to come good for us. Um, so I think loaning him out would be silly, especially considering the performance he put in last week. But guys like Hakeem Ziyech and RLC, I mean, Ziyech, as well as he played last week, you still have to look at him as a sellable asset, somebody that we can get some sort of value back for. And then the same thing with RLC. Now, we're not going to get a major transfer fee for Loftus-Cheek, but he is at a young enough age to where we can potentially get top dollar for what he's actually worth. Um, so two potential deals that could be on the cards. Those are two players that I feel like we could upgrade on in the long run. What do you think about that? I am with you on the Gallagher stuff. I think Gallagher stays. There's no question there. Now, 
I I hate having to come to the point where I have to jump off the RLC train. I hate that because I was I just wanted the best for the guy and I know all of us in this podcast did. So it's just kind of sad to see sort of the culmination because I don't think there's any other pathway anymore of the RLC attempt over and over again to force him into the side. Um, and we, we already discussed Ziyech. I mean, we, we kind of both know where that's going. So to me, it's, it, I'm glad Potter has blocked any sort of talk about Gallagher. But yeah, I, I don't think there's, there's actually a multiple choice for the other two guys. Yeah, unfortunately, I think it might be a foregone conclusion that both of them are going to be gone eventually. It's just a matter of when. Whether it's now or summer, right. Exactly, as opposed to if. Um, that pretty much ties up all the loose ends for the transfer rumors. I, there's a couple things that we're still keeping our eyes on, um, like Declan Rice potentially going to Arsenal, things like that. We're going to keep you guys in the loop as it's going, but I don't really want to waste my time talking about Arsenal, especially if the deal is not done yet. And uh, and plus, Chelsea are going to wind up hijacking it at the last second, fly a private jet over to, uh, or actually, he's on the other side of London, so we'll probably just send a cab. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Eggbali opening up the door with a bottle of champagne and, you know, $150,000 salary. Um, but anyways, we do play Liverpool next this upcoming Saturday. It is away at Anfield, and uh, I think it's a good time to play Liverpool, honestly, because they are in a poor run of form. They did just lose their last match 3-0 to Brighton, so they lost both matches on the season to Brighton. Um, they are in the market for a midfield player. They're very, very thin at that position, pretty much reliant on Henderson and Fabinho at this point. Um, and the good news for us is that they play Wolves uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, um, in the FA Cup. So that's a tournament they take very seriously, as we already know. Um, one that Klopp is not going to put out a weak lineup for. They're going to go for the win there. And I know Wolves are not necessarily in the best form, but they do have some new signings that came in, some fresh faces that are willing and ready to make a statement on the team. And I think those guys will get their opportunity in the, in the FA Cup. So it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion that Liverpool walk over Wolves with a half-assed squad and face Chelsea completely fresh on Saturday. The more likely scenario is that they play a tough game against Wolves. They most likely win, but they go into Saturday just a little bit tired. Um, so, Ron asks us, how are we feeling going into Saturday um, knowing the way Liverpool has been playing? Surprisingly optimistic. <laughs> I mean, I think right now Liverpool's in a weird position where we at least have the excuse that we are in a project. They are supposed to be the the project come to fruition. So I don't think that Liverpool's got quite the depth to where they can put out a, a blank 11 on Tuesday and then have a fresh 11 come Saturday. Um, it is the early kickoff, which also doesn't help them. I personally think that they're there for the taking. I also think that we play up to their, like, if they're the better team, we play up to their level and always give them a tough time. I mean, we, we only lost to them last season because of penalties. Van Dyke is hurt with a hamstring. 
So, you know, Matip and Kanate, roll of the dice almost. They're not obviously as, as calm at the back as, as he is. And then the midfield. I think that, surprisingly, even though Fabinho is healthy, I think that's where we can really get Liverpool, is if we get the midfield correct. I think that Hendo has kind of been bad recently. Um, and it just hasn't quite meshed for that midfield three the way it used to. So, yeah, I I feel good. I feel like, again, I think the last match really helps morale. I don't expect us to come into Liverpool and just score a bunch, but I know we can buckle down and keep them from scoring. I saw that last weekend. So, yeah, I mean, if you shut down Mo Salah, I think you're you're halfway there. What are what are our predictions? One nil. I'm gonna go two one. I think uh, I don't think we keep a clean sheet, um, but I do think we have enough to get across the line here. And, and and I think the mentality that Liverpool has right now, you know, granted we haven't been in the best of form either, but let's not forget Liverpool are in ninth and we're in tenth. I know they have a game in hand, but proof is in the pudding. They've been playing like dog shit, and uh, and and we. Haven't been as shitty. Let's just put it that way. So I'm gonna go two one. I think we win by a goal either way. Um, if you're still listening to this uh, to this episode, thank you. Um, and make sure you're following us on Twitter at Blues on Parade. Um, also make sure that you're looking out for our Twitter questions. Um, so we make a post at the end of every match asking for Twitter questions. And um, if you're wondering how you get a shout out on the podcast or how you get your question answered, that's how you do it. Look for that question, respond to it. Or just tweet us um, at some point during the week, letting us know what your question is, and we'll be sure to include it here on the pod. So we do drop an episode after every single match. Make sure you're looking out for that. And until next week, keep the blue flag flying high.